Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the uh, monthly AIDS seminar series. I'll be your master of ceremonies today since uh, Richard Waddell is away. We're going to um, talk about some interesting findings at the recent conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections. Um, before we get started, I have just a couple of um, regulatory attestations to make. So we have four speakers today, um, Mary, Margaret, Paul, Brian, and me. Two of the speakers have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Both Brian and Paul have commercial connections that have been discussed and resolved and are not thought to present a problem. Um, we, none of us plan to uh, discuss off-label, to advocate for off-label uses of products, although we will discuss some early clinical trials that we anticipate probably will inform labeling in the future. And there is no commercial support for today's activity. So Mary Margaret, kick us off. Thanks. Unfortunately, my computer is in the process of restarting. So we'll, we'll give it take a minute to come. <laughs> this, uh, it's always amazing to attend the CORI conference because it really is um, one of the preeminent scientific meetings, I think. And you, you go to the conference and feel grateful just to uh, hear the quality of the science and, and also to try to absorb how quickly things are changing in this field. It's, it's really, really amazing. Um, one of the new developments at CROI this year is that uh, they've made it an open, basically an open access meeting now, which it didn't used to be. They've now posted all the web, uh, uh, all the film sessions online and they're available to anyone to review. The abstract book um, was given as a PDF this year for the first time, and I talked with the other folks who went to the meeting, and we all agreed that that, that was good in some ways and bad in others, because it's a 900-page PDF, and you're not carrying it around and sort of flipping through it as you go. Um, so the bottom line is I think many of us will just be working our way through the PDF for the next few weeks and really getting into the detail that was in the meeting. And at the same time, um, the PDF um, presumably now is available to anybody because you could take it off your little disk and put it on your computer if you'd like. So um, there's a tremendous amount of info out there. So Mary Margaret, are you suggesting since the uh, presentations are available online that you don't need to pay the $720 <laughs> registration fee and we can just stay home? Well, it did occur to me that for the first time that that really is um, feasible. And, you know, there's some things about going to these meetings that are, it's just really difficult to absorb the information um, all at once. So I can see people doing that. On the other hand, a lot of people use it as a time to have meetings with collaborators. And I know you, Paul, you always have breakfast, lunch, and dinner meetings. And so, it, and it's fun to really talk to people and interact in front of the posters if you like to do that. So um, you also, it's really hard to tell on paper sort of what the buzz was and where the um, uh, important other information was coming out of the meeting, so I think it would, that would be harder for me to tell just from paper. So I don't know why this is not showing. Let's try this. It's not just the light. I have no idea. No. I think you want to continue with the continue with the pattern. If you have if you have some jokes to tell, this would be a good time. So you can see my slides over here. Um, so one of the um, things that has really changed is that HIV infection. 
longer this simple model, really, where you have the virus and you have immune cells that have CD4 receptors, and those lymphocytes, macrophages, or genetic cells get infected, and then they die. That model is true, but what's really become uh, more important is the concept of immune inflammation and immune activation at every stage of the disease. And a lot of the themes uh, and basic immunology themes from the meeting um, that translate into end organ damage were all around this idea of inflammation from acute HIV and also untreated HIV. And when we were talking about who was going to present uh, what for the meeting, ironically, I ended up with some of the immunology things, which is okay because I actually used to work in an immunology lab, so I know a little bit about it. But things have really changed dramatically, and I'll just give you a thumbnail sketch, and I'm going to skip this diagram because it's going to make us sick if we go through it. Uh, <laughs> and just say a little bit about um, how they use some of the plenaries at the session um, to really uh, focus on some of the developments in the immune response to HIV. It, as it turns out, uh, the innate immune system has a tremendous role in taking care of the new pathogen, HIV. And there are many ways that the immune system has developed to identify viruses and defend itself, essentially, against viruses. And the science of how all these innate immune responses uh, work both as sensing the presence of a virus or a uh, foreign pathogen, and then actually working as effectors in controlling that pathogen is really all just being worked out. You've probably heard about toll-like receptors, which are very important in um, recognizing extracellular pathogens and in um, endosomal pathogens. And I think from Tim today, you're going to hear a lot more about this idea of what happens intracytosolically with viral recognition and the concept of pure apoptosis um, and how that chronic uh, activation of the innate immune system can actually <coughs> cause tissue damage. There was a very interesting plenary about the antiviral factor tetherin. And um, this was not uh, a factor that I was familiar with before, but they, the presenter, Dr. Vinaj, talked about how this, um, they've proven essentially that these factors develop in a, uh, a host-specific manner and that uh, these are all unique to different species and are part of why HIV can affect and infect some uh, pathogens and not others. And so um, this is something that I think will turn out potentially to have a, a role in therapeutics. There was a great review of type 1 interferons, and um, this was given by Dr. Mallon. These are really important um, in general immune response <laughs> to viral pathogens. As many of you remember, the interferons drop uh, the HIV viral load about a log initially with treatment, but then the virus rebounds for reasons that haven't been clear, and there's a whole regulatory pathway with induction of multiple other interferon-related genes and gene products, maybe up to 900 of them, they're involved in that viral control. On the adaptive immune side, there was also a plenary session about B-cell immunity, and um, it focused a lot on B-cell exhaustion and the concept of both tissue and peripheral B-cells and uh, specific B-cells that, um, I'm sorry, and the concept of uh, basically it with the, the same model that we're more familiar with, T-cells of exhaustion and basically constant activation and um, ineffective use of the immune response. And there was also some discussion about um, broadly neutralizing antibodies, which are still, people still hope will be helpful in vaccine development. So that's my overview of uh, the 
immune response. And let's get into a little bit about how it might uh, translate into tissue damage. This is a graphic from a, a recent review. And basically tries to summarize how challenging it is to sort out um, with all the things that are going on in someone with HIV and immune activation. There are so many cofactors um, co involved and then all these different pathways of regulation. But the net result is that you may be at risk for um, this tissue inflammation. And here it mentions cardiovascular disease. But as we're learning now, it's actually involved in all organs. It presumably is the genesis of difficulties with neuroaids, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. It clearly is related to cardiovascular disease and increased risk for cardiovascular disease in HIV. It appears to be related to lung disease, which I'll also talk about. I think Tim may talk a little bit more about some of the gut issues. Um, and Brian will be talking more about uh, hepatitis C, but also about some of the long-standing liver disease issues in patients with HIV. And that's not even getting into the endocrine issues. So it's really affecting every organ system. There is now a cohesive set of data about neuroaids that really began with the observation that there is significant cognitive impairment in cohorts of people living with HIV AIDS when you do um, meticulous neuropsychological screening and a panel of tests, sometimes even up to 15 tests, to look at various cohorts. And this is data from one of the, one of the largest studies called the cohort study, um, showing that about 53% of people living with AIDS, the vast majority of whom were on HIV treatment, uh, had normal responses to these tests. And uh, about 33% were asymptomatic but had abnormal test results. 12% had documented uh, subjective and objective cognitive impairment. And a very small proportion of people had dementia. <coughs> there was a really excellent plenary given by Dr. Serena Skudich on uh, neuroaids and where we stand with it. And she went through all the various lines of evidence now that support ongoing uh, central nervous system inflammation in the setting of ongoing antiretroviral <coughs> therapy. Uh, she started with this data from the cohort study and other neuropsychological testing data. She went into some very um, elegant studies about biomarkers in the central nervous system, one of which I'll show you. And then she also gave other lines of evidence about um, <coughs> the neuroimaging showing reduced brain volumes in people living with HIV compared to uninfected controls. Whoops, back. The study that she spent a fair amount of time talking about um, showing biomarkers of evidence of axonal injury in HIV patients really took this cohort of patients and uh, on the bottom here you have age and on this side you have a graph of their central nervous system uh, neurofilament ligand, I think it is, one protein as a marker for axonal injury in the central nervous system. And you can see there is definitely this correlation of higher neurofilament levels and evidence of axonal injury in people in the blue who are not on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, you see an improvement and more normal levels in people on antiretroviral therapy compared to people who were uh, HIV negative, but not completely normal levels. This is just one study, and she went through a whole series of them. The sad news is even the uninfected are showing <laughs> So pick your age out there. Exactly. So this is now a recognized general marker of neuro neurologic injury that's being applied to HIV. It's been used in um, Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. As far as uh, another example, she I used a recent study of acute HIV. This is actually 
study slightly before the, the ones in the slide that slides that she used, but it illustrates the point, the same point when you take a small cohort of people coming in with acute HIV uh, who are newly diagnosed and about to go on treatment, you can document HIV in the central nervous system of almost all of them. Um, and there are some individuals who do not have HIV, so this is not uniform that every patient gets it. And you see there's quite a wide variety in levels. She went on to show another study of treated patients and show that people essentially established different set points in the central nervous system, um, similar to what you might see in the blood, and then introduced this concept of compartmentalization um, in the brain. And I'll talk, get back to that in one second. So it looks like prior to therapy, um, there's injury to the blood-brain barrier, and monocytes track into the central nervous system and bring HIV with them. There's an inflammatory cascade, and there's activation of glial cells and resident macrophages, and there's this cycle then again that comes, and it's a familiar story of blood-brain barrier breakdown, ongoing cytokines, and um, a, a new phenomenon, something that was new to me at least, HIV particle toxin release, an actual deposition of proteins in the CNS that appears to be detrimental with injury. What we know for sure now is that it does not appear that HIV infects neurons. After HIV treatment, there's clearly evidence of ongoing immune activation. There's evidence of persistent infection. Um, there's debate about the role of vascular disease. SOTA study demonstrating increased rates of stroke in women with HIV, whereas strokes in general and the general population are diminishing over the last 10 years. Um, there's a lot of concern about how do you sort out all the different comorbidities, and she spoke specifically about substance use mood disorders. She did not mention hepatitis C in this category, which is something that we worry about. And she talked, uh, did, showed some data just about general neurodegeneration and aging and comparison in people living with HIV. There is a literature about antiretroviral penetration into the central nervous system and concern um, that there are some drugs that we use regularly that do not penetrate the central nervous system well. And it's uh, not clear at this point in time always what that means, but it is clear that there are people, rare people, who will escape that are current antiretroviral therapy, develop resistant virus in the central nervous system that can be documented to be resistant to what they're taking in the peripheral system, and have progressive neurologic symptoms. So this is rare, but it's something that we need to be aware of. And it's in contrast to what we used to call more of an iris syndrome or uh, immune reconstitution syndrome in someone who's recently had a change in meds or someone who uh, has a is newly on therapy. There's a lot of debate about the potential role of the central nervous system as a reservoir and implications for cure and treatment, and she gave a really good discussion about that, and I encourage any of you uh, to look at this if you're um, interested in this, this topic. Uh, this is hard information for patients, and I think I'll just say that as a last thing about neuroaids. Uh, you, you certainly, I think as providers, we don't want to scare patients, um, but I think the implications for us is that we need to be screening and looking for patients who do have cognitive impairment and then working towards figuring out, you know, what are our options for enhanced treatment for that subpopulation of people living with HIV. There was an interesting uh, cardiovascular session, and I'm just going to mention one thing from the session, which is actually a study by Priscilla uh, <coughs> Sue, or, uh, who's now, I guess, at, at UCSF, and they were looking, trying to use FDG-PET to track um, inflammation, tracking from the spleen to the heart. And they basically were able to do this in a small study of patients and show that the immune cells that are going to the heart and causing localized inflammation appear to be circulating through the spleen. 
this is a new concept and it brings up the idea of well what role does the spleen play in all these other infections and um, uh, informed consumer in the audience said quickly you know well what does it mean for splenectomized patients and I think uh, we all know splenectomized patients who've uh, lived a healthy life with HIV but it is unclear what it does mean I think in the long term in terms of immune activation so there'll certainly be a lot more interest in using FDG PET and studying um, this. The final tissue of interest I want to mention is the lung. And unfortunately, it looks like um, lung disease is clearly more prevalent in HIV cohorts compared to non-HIV cohorts. That's even when you uh, adjust for smoking and other comorbidities. And the uh, risk of COPD, for example, appears to be a, at least two times, uh, or there's an odds ratio of approximately two times, even when you adjust for all the other covariates. And that was seen in several large uh, trials. These are all observational studies. And there'll be more data coming out of them um, <coughs> because they are, some of them are ongoing. The exhale subsetting of the veterans aging cohort and this ANF, ANRS, uh, HIV chest, study is a study looking at using CAT scan to screen for lung cancer. Um, so these, this is a particularly high-risk subgroup, but it is, will be going on prospectively. And the take-home message really is that the causation uh, hasn't been proven, but there's certainly enough uh, concern that it has implications for screening and testing. There's basic science evidence about damage in um, the, the lung that's most affected by emphysema. And um, it's not clear at this point how things will change with antiretroviral therapy. The one, the pieces of data that are mess, missing right now are the immune um, data that you would get from doing bronchoalveolar lavage. So those studies are coming. Um, with HIV-specific immunologic data from BAL in this cohort of patients. And then also there's going to be this sub-study of the START study, which is looking prospectively at uh, putting people on early antiretroviral therapy. And there's a subgroup of those people who will be screened with early spirometry to try to tease out whether this, is, this improves with antiretroviral therapy. So the, I'll stop there. I think you know the implications for me as a clinician are really around uh, trying to keep our patients healthy and uh, keep looking for, keep our eyes open about problems coming down the road. So while Paul's getting going here, I'm happy to take any questions. Was it, remember, is there any more talk about thinking about specific therapeutic agents with regard to the CNS penetration for these kind of reasons? Absolutely. You know, sort of yeah, I think that's really the, that discussion? the goal. And, um, you know, it's going to be just as Paul's going to talk a lot here about tenofovir. And, you know, I think there's we're, we're going to be balancing the toxicities and benefits in these different tissues. It's going to be tough. Serena had this really interesting slide where um, she had a table where each class of antiretroviral agents was represented by a row. And then each member of that class was given a score depending on how well it did or did not penetrate the CSF. And so they, you could essentially come up with a score for your antiretroviral regimen for how good it was in the brain. And they showed that the ability of your regimen to get into the CNS correlated with whether you did or did not have um, Markers of inflammation, for instance, so it makes and, you wonder if that's common. And that um, CPE score, which was developed by Scott Lutendre and others, you know, I think is is in common use at this point in time. But there's just a lot of debate about um, what are the best regimens. And so it's going to be. Vis-a-vis -vis <coughs> the the lung uh, study that you reported, um, there have been reports of adolescents in Africa who are that HIV infected, you know, at birth, who get started on ARVs late after five years of age, who have an accelerated and increased amount of uh, 
pulmonary function deficits. We're actually uh, starting this week a spirometry-based study in our DAR clinic uh, targeting youth uh, to see if we can replicate that and get at pathogenesis. So, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking about cure. You've probably heard a lot about baby cure, et cetera. There really was absolutely nothing new at the meeting. There was a second case that was reported out of L.A., uh, a baby whose mother was known during pregnancy, who was prescribed antiretrovirals, who decided not to take them. Uh, the baby was born and was put on treatment at two hours of age and has done very well since, but is still on treatment, so we don't know the outcome of that. I'm sure we don't have any mothers here who uh, refuse to take their ARVs during pregnancy, so we don't have that issue. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Um, what I am going to spend a couple minutes talking about is a study we've been waiting for for quite some time. Uh, it's uh, an evaluation of the consequences of using tenofovir in pregnancy on the fetus and, and newborn. Uh, this was a very elaborate study done in the United States as part of something called the FACT study. This is an NICHD-sponsored prospective cohort study of uh, newborns of HIV-infected moms. These newborns in this cohort um, all are HIV-uninfected, and the, the full purpose of the study is to try and detect any adverse outcomes in fetuses and newborns who've been exposed to a wide variety of antiretrovirals during pregnancy. This particular one is looking at tenofovir. Um, <coughs> You all probably know that tenofovir is now recommended for pregnant women in the U.S. Uh, public Health Service guidelines as well as the WHO guidelines. So it's a common agent used in pregnancy. Uh, everyone acknowledges that we don't know what the long-term or short-term consequences of using it are for that pregnancy, and that's what uh, uh, you'll see here in these results. So there is concern about... Uh, Tenofovir's impact on bone health. Uh, lone, low bone mineral density has been detected in adults. There are smaller trials in children which also detect lower bone mineral density. It's a little hard to know what the exact clinical consequences of that are. Um, so there's scant data, almost no data, on maternal use in pregnancy and the fetal effects. But there's some animal data that's a, a somewhat worrisome. Uh, and so the study was uh, conducted. Uh, DEXA scans were done on a fairly large cohort of about 150 infants uh, born to, to, to mothers who either were exposed to tenofovir or not exposed to tenofovir during, uh, during pregnancy. There were 14 sites in the U.S. and Puerto Rico that participated. Uh, they all used the same DEXA scan, which is very important, the same scanner. It's a hologic. Uh, there was very elaborate training uh, to, to make the DEXA scanning consistent across all sites. And the interpretation was all done at a single center at Tufts University. Uh, so there was a lot of control uh, and consistency built into this study. Um, there are no infant norms, uh, but, but uh, about 150 uh, children or newborns were involved, uh, uh, enrolled. Uh, the DEXA scans were done at approximately two weeks of age, plus or minus a week. So this is uh, the uh, enrollment diagram. Uh, it was about a two-year study. Uh, it ended last summer. 195 were enrolled, 174 were confirmed eligible. Uh, prematurity was a, uh, a disallowed uh, <coughs> entry criteria, so any uh, newborn at less than or equal to 36 weeks gestational age uh, was not uh, entered into the study. 150 DEXs were performed, and remarkably, 143 of them were deemed evaluable. Uh, this is not an easy test, as you might imagine, to perform a whole body DEXA scan on a two-week-old infant, uh, but there was a lot of uh, uh, pediatric skilled nurses involved. Uh, so we had 74 in the tenofovir group, 69 in the non-tenofovir group. Uh, to be in the tenofovir group, the mothers had to have at least two weeks exposure and use of tenofovir, uh, and there was a range there, obviously. Uh, they were pretty well matched, uh, these two groups, except for the boosted PI category. There was 86% boosted PI in the tenofovir group, 
versus 64% in the non-tenofovir group. You can see uh, the different regimens that were used uh, in the tenofovir arm versus the non-tenofovir arm. And uh, in the analyses, there was some control for, yeah? I'm sorry, on that, really 21% of the non-tenofovirs are in prison? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, in the United States, in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure it was, a lot of it was uh, personal choice on the part of the subject, uh, but it, this is the data. Good to point that out. <coughs> I'm going the wrong way. So here's the data, uh, which was striking. Uh, they they looked at the mean whole body bone mineral content as assessed by DEXA scanning. Uh, and it was 63.8 grams uh, versus 56 grams uh, in the two groups, highly significantly different. 7.8 grams lower in the tenofovir arm uh, for a difference of about 12.2% or a half standard deviation. Uh, so the concerns about using tenofovir in pregnancy uh, appear to be borne out at least by a two-week DEXA scan uh, estimating uh, bone mineral uh, content. They also looked at a multi multivariate analysis model. Uh, there were many variables which could impact on uh, outcome here, including site, infant gestational age, length of the infant, race and ethnicity, age at which the DEXA scan was performed, which was fairly consistent, but there was a range. <coughs> Uh, the fact that there was more uh, boosted PI in one group than the other, age and smoking. Uh, there was no differences in third trimester viral load or CD4 count. And when controlling for all of these things, all of these potential added variables, there was still a highly significant difference uh, favoring the non-tenofovir group. Oops. So <coughs> um, we see a significant bone mineral content deficit. Uh, in newborns, uh, it persists after multiple adjustments. We don't know if this is going to be a durable difference. In other words, will bone mineral content correct after uh, uh, in, in the first months to years of life? The FACTS group is uh, planning or does have solid plans to do serial uh, DEXA scans on the infants in this study uh, to track just that. There's also a big a uh, sub-study called P1084S in uh, a large uh, prevention trial called PROMISE, uh, which the IMPACT Network is conducting. This is largely being conducted in Africa. So they're going to replicate this study in African children, uh, many of whom will be exposed to tenofovir and some won't, so we'll have another comparative trial. Uh, the data has all been collected but the PROMISE study itself, the prevention trial, is still ongoing. And until that uh, comes to some sort of conclusion, uh, we're probably not going to see the 1084S data. So some real big questions about using tenofovir in pregnancy. It's currently recommended across the board in this country and in Africa. Uh, there's some worrisome signals here from this study. Uh, and we're all extraordinarily interested as to whether this difference uh, of low bone mineral density persists over the long haul uh, in these exposed uh, newborns uh, or whether it'll correct fairly rapidly. Uh, so it has created some ripples in the guidelines communities and in the practice communities, and we desperately need more and better follow-up data. I don't know, Paul, in this uh, adult session, they talked about um, data supporting low bone mineral density and perinatally infected so low bone mineral density is a fact of life, uh, I think, across the board in HIV-infected individuals. On the pediatric and youth side, it's very common. Uh, you can talk to uh, uh, Marge and uh, Mina and the rest of the folks in the pediatric team that goes down to Manchester and here. I mean, it's, it's a question that comes up every clinic. Uh, managing vitamin D, calcium, bone density, et cetera, is a big problem. Impact has, the Impact Network has an open trial right now looking at uh, placebo versus alendronate in adolescents. Uh, 
there's a frighteningly high degree of low bone mineral density um, in HIV-infected youth. Uh, so there's a therapeutic attempt at trying to uh, bypass that or correct that. Uh, but it's a, it's a very common, uh, common issue. Mina, do you want to comment any of it about it? I think you, you said it. I guess one of the things that I wonder about, too, and I can't remember if the impact studies looking at it is um, teasing out, is it calcium-dependent or more vitamin D or, or a combination right. of the And, and this study from FACS is going to do the same thing. They have uh, plasma specimens stored on these uh, newborns, and are, they're getting serial specimens over time. And they're going to try to tease out some of the biology that may be involved. Okay. Were these infants breastfed or formula fed or did they look at the feed? They were probably not uh, breastfed since they were U.S. and Puerto Rico. But remember, this is only at two weeks of age. Yeah. Uh, so it really is a fetal effect that we're uh, assessing here with, with these studies. Excuse <coughs> me, questions for Paul? Can everyone see that okay with the lights on? Yeah. Okay. You can go to the slideshow menu up at the top. Say what? See, like midway across the, the middle of the very top of the screen, it says slideshow. Click on those words. Then you can say from the beginning, from the front. <laughs> All right, um, so I guess first a quick general comment. The um, CROI just is such a different conference as far as the spectrum of what's covered and what gets people excited <clears throat> today than it was 10 years ago or five years ago. So um, Mary Margaret was talking about inflammation, Paul's talking about bone mineral density. <clears throat> Tim's going to be talking about transmission stuff, amongst other, which I guess goes back a while. And to be talking about hep C, it's like, where's the HIV and COI? Where's antiretroviral therapy? Um, there's, <clears throat> it's sort of steadily um, becoming less of a part of COI, both antiretroviral therapy and developed world optimistic infection issues. There's loads and loads of stuff on TB uh, and other pertinent developing world optimistic infections, none of which we're touching on today. Um, <clears throat> and then for antiretroviral therapy, there's really remarkably little. When people were saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, or <coughs> no one said, I want to do antiretroviral therapy. Um, I will mention a couple slides, <clears throat> but again, just to point out how different this is from uh, years ago. Uh, what we're dealing with are the long-term complications of living with HIV and issues around uh, drug toxicity, et cetera. <clears throat> hepatitis C. I'm going to just really give some big picture <coughs> on hepatitis C. Oh, and by the way, the uh, organization that sponsors CROI, IAS, International Aid Society, ain't the International Aid Society anymore. It's the International Antiviral Society. Uh, <clears throat> sometime in the last year, it changed. Um, and that's because largely of this, because of hepatitis C now becoming really a part of CROI. <clears throat> so this is a presentation uh, that Dr. Polotsky, uh provided that sort of summarized where we are and where we are going to go in the near future for hepatitis C. And for the non-clinicians in the room, <clears throat> um, three years ago, hepatitis C treatment options were one. Uh, pegylated interferon and ribavirin, <clears throat> 48 weeks for most people, incredibly poorly tolerated. 
uh, <coughs> genotype one, maybe 40% um, <coughs> SVR rates, essentially cured. Um, <coughs> this is where we will be before too much longer. Uh, <coughs> and you can see, and these are interferon-free combination options, being studied by a whole bunch of companies looking at <coughs> multiple drugs in combination, as many as four in some regimens, uh, two in a couple of other regimens, using drugs from one, two, three, four <coughs> classes, plus, minus ribavirin in the regimens. <coughs> so this, in the not too distant future, is what we will be using to treat hepatitis C. Um, <coughs> for HIV co-infected and not co-infected patients, with the data on the infected lagging somewhat behind the co-infected lagging somewhat behind the data on the non-co-infected patients. So are these drugs specific for hepatitis C virus, or are also they targeting or can target because of the mechanism HIV? And that question goes to the co-infected patients. Can they target HIV yes. as well? No, these are purely hep C drugs. But based on the mechanism that they have. Yeah, no, they're, they're, these, none of these, I believe, will, are thought to have any activity against, meaningful activity against HIV. So purely hep C. <clears throat> okay. So where we are today, um, in Europe anyway, and we're not quite there in the U.S., are we do have still um, interferon-based regimens the uh, clavisvir is not approved in the U.S. yet. It is approved in Europe. Uh, so we have the first two options um, uh, uh, using pegylated interferon. And then we have these two options for uh, interferon-free regimens available um, uh, at this time. So for genotypes 2 and 3, sofosbuvir and ribavirin, for genotypes 1 and 4, um, this is still recommended, but this is an option for people who are um, intolerant of interferon. So we are already in 2014 in, uh, at a point where interferon-free uh, regimens are available, if not first line, for essentially all genotypes. And um, it's just happened overnight. Again, that's where we're going to be in a number of years. Uh, and just to mention um, uh, some of the um, some things that we are going to have to start thinking about in the treatment of hepatitis C are things that we have been dealing with in HIV for a long time. So we're starting to hear about genetic barrier to resistance and the pertinence of that for therapy. We're having to pay attention to specific mutations associated with response to therapy and then presumably failure on therapy and options, cross-resistance, and, um, and on. And then just to give you a quick sense of how effective we're talking about here, there were a number of studies presented. I'm, I just chose this one because it was the first one that popped up on my list. Uh, and again, to emphasize, our prior therapies interfere on ribavirin genotype 1, maybe a plus minus 40% SVR rate. Uh, with the addition of the first generation protease inhibitors that we were using, not a lot, but some over the last couple of years, we could get that SVR rate up significantly, 70% plus, but at the expense of additional toxicity still using uh, interferon maybe 24 weeks, but not for everyone. So it was still a really tough road, and that's about the best we could get. So this is just, again, one fairly randomly chosen study of um, uh, drugs developed by Abbott. Not going to go through the study at all. I just want to make the point that what we're looking at in the way of SVR rates are approaching 100% really astounding. Um, Brian, are these all co-formulated, or are they? Uh, no, no. So some are being co-formulated, many are not. 
But certainly, as you saw here, one company is making a bunch of drugs and studying, so obviously that's where things will be heading. And which is good and bad, obviously, because it means we're not going to learn as much about using sort of mixing and matching options. And then uh, also just very quickly to mention one study here. This is a synergy study. Uh, Tim was originally going to present this, so Tim, um, change me if, or uh, add in if you want. Again, not going to go through it in detail. Uh, I just want to make the point that um, treatments are non-interferon-based, oral therapy, direct-acting drugs, and um, note the duration of therapy. That's the main point I want here. Two arms are six weeks. One is 12 weeks. So we've seen studies with 12-week data, but six weeks of therapy uh, is astounding. Uh, I'm not going to mention anything about that, but um, again, check out the response rates, 90 to 100%. Um, so we're looking at um, options that are much, much better tolerated, <clears throat> really abbreviated therapy. Six weeks for hepatitis C is just hard to imagine, uh, <clears throat> and with incredibly high SVR rates. So really a, a different world um, that we are in and rapidly heading towards. Um, Tim, Mary Margaret, some comments on hep C? I got distracted. Pig. My pig. Oh, let me yeah, get rid of sorry. the pig. <laughs> Can I ask you just a question? I mean, obviously, yeah. the cost implications of oh. these things are Ugh. even in those six weeks, you can spend a lot of money. So, did, do people talk about cost effectiveness or you know, sort of like yeah. Yeah. or policy, how to pay for kind of yeah. stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, questions came from the audience about asking. Is six weeks actually more cost effective, for example? You know, maybe 12 weeks uh, with two drugs are more cost effective than six weeks with four, and if it's equally well. So, yeah, that was being brought up, but um, only in that way, just asking, you know, what are the implications for cost and cost effectiveness? Could we you look we, at viral decay, too, and like, could you predict that? Week four, who was not going to make it just like now? We might predict that week 12 and stuff like that. Right, shortened therapy. And the, the, you're right, the costs are astronomical. Um, so, sofrosphere is uh, what per day? Thousand ish per day. Uh, Barry recently got us data what it will cost for a single pill of sofrosphere patients admitted, so out of our inpatient pharmacy, it's going to be 5000 plus bucks for one pill if someone takes these meds while hospitalized from our hospital pharmacy. So the costs are truly astronomical. Um, we'll see how other drugs get priced when they come out. Right. Are there, is there any uh, genotype issue, or is this all effective across all genotypes? Um, it's variable depending on the drugs. Um, so some are all genotype. Uh, some agents are more active against some than others. So absolutely, um, genotype is going to be important to us. <coughs> is there any way of are there any tools or tests to predict what people are more likely to progress and have? Like, are there some people? Is there any way of figuring out? other than what's going on right this minute in a biopsy or something like, like that. who to treat, basically, yeah. how to prioritize treatment. Yeah, so there's, um, just to mention, if people haven't seen the IDSA um, uh, new guidelines on what to treat with. And so this is genotype-specific recommendations for what the preferred uh, therapies are. Uh, it's a, it's a um, really great new resource, and it's going to get more important as things get more complicated. Uh, included in there, there's going to be a lot more in there besides um, what to treat with, and <clears throat> there's a big section on who to treat that hasn't been written, um, that they advertise as, you know, coming soon down the road. So um, there, I don't think is a lot new still about to inform who to, how to prioritize treatment, who it's more important. 
you know, it's all of what we've been doing in the past. It's thinking about biopsies, thinking about duration of infection, thinking about comorbidities, alcohol, et cetera, HIV. Um, but the reality is, Mary Margaret tends to feel differently than others in the audience, it's still, there's still a lot of hand-waving around this, and it's really hard to, uh, I think, uh, coherently address the question. I would say there's, it's clear that there are better regimens coming still, just like yeah. we have been feeling that you know, these regimens that are going to be, that are, are currently available are amazing. But when you use them with ribavirin, you end up on, per the guidelines, on more ribavirin-based regimens, your side effects, as it turns out, are really similar to what they were on an interferon-based regimen, with headache and malaise and you know, real disability. As opposed to some of those two drug regimens that Brian showed you at the end there, without ribavirin and um, without protease inhibitors, I guess some of them are. And you know, basically, they have, they're symptom-free, two drugs and shorter regimens on the horizon. So it's really, I think for people who need treatment now, there'll be better options. But for people who can wait, there's reason to think it's reasonable to wait. Yeah, so, and it, when we're talking a, a horizon, a, a year for uh, some newer options, it certainly is reasonable for some patients to sit back and defer treatment. Still. For, you know, if only 10 or 15 or people are going to get sick with hep C over their lifetime, it would be nice to know uh, if yeah. there was something different about the people who never progressed. We, there were a couple presentations on uh, the uptake of the first generation protease inhibitors that we've been using for a couple years, and the uptake has been abysmal. You know, people have done just this. They've said, we're expecting much better treatments. We're going to defer therapy until we have them. I mean, the, the nice thing about the Synergy study, the last one that Ryan showed you, was that it was six weeks with three drugs with nearly 100% response rates, and the population was, I think, 75% African-American, 25% of them had cirrhosis, and a fair, and none of them had the, the favorable IL-28 phenotype. So even if you wait for somebody to kind of get in trouble, you can still get great results. Yeah. And it looks like the IL-28 issue is probably going to go away once we're done with interferon, too. Are you going to? Are any of these sort of polygenotype drugs being studied in acute infection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was, there were lots of, um, there's lots of discussion about acute hepatitis C and the biology of acute hepatitis C, and it's clear you can use direct acting therapy and should be using direct acting therapy for acute hepatitis C. Based on, you know, for all exactly the same reasons as in, with regard to um, the immunology and the viral dynamics of the immune, long-standing immune activation. Barry, we heard the amazing number for the pill cost inpatient. What's the comparable cost outpatient? I think it's just over a thousand dollars. So five x markup. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. So I mean, admit your patients. It, se it seemed excessive, but. Then, you know, we, we buy a whole 28-day supply out of a bottle, and then the patient gets it for two days and gets discharged. I guess it's a, a strategy to recoup some of our costs. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go quickly here so that Tim's able uh, to speak. There was uh, a nice presentation on hepatitis E. I'll encourage people to... Uh, uh, watch it online if they want, just to say the hepatitis E story is a, is a little more complicated than we learned about um, uh, as fellows in our case, um, in that um, there's clearly an import of um, hepatitis E. Um, do they refer to them as genotypes or variants? Uh, there's four main hepatitis E variants, anyway, uh, genetically. And um, they're distributed differently uh, around, the, around the world. And some <clears throat> appear to be more pathogenic, not all associated with the classic high mortality in pregnant women that we learned along the way. <clears throat> uh, and uh, with one clearly being, uh, or steadily being associated with 
more zoonotic transmission, not just from acute porky up there, but from uh, a number of different species. Three is the, the big, big deer, shellfish, maybe perennial. Out there. All right, just really quickly on antiviral, antiretrovirals. Um, <clears throat> this I, I put up there largely because it's incredibly ho hum, and this is about as good as it got for uh, um, presentations on currently available antiretrovirals. It's an ACTG study, as ever, my biases. ACTG is five years out of date. Um, so you basically ask the question of the four uh, first-line regimens prior to recently revised guidelines. Um, a bunch of people can't take a favorin, so which is better? Adizanivir boosted, darunavir boosted, raltegravir boosted. Anyone want to guess who wins and why? It depends how you look at it. Yeah, um, the answer was predictable. Raltegravir wins because it's better tolerated. So if you care, if the question is how many people are suppressed and still on therapy that uh, they started on, it's raltegravir. And <clears throat> darunavir versus adizanivir, which one wins? Darunavir, because people who turn yellow stop taking adizanivir. Um, and seriously, that's it. Um, it. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot else on uh, that I thought was particularly exciting on currently available antiretrovirals. There are new drugs in the pipeline, and that's the only reason I put this up there, to say there are new drugs in the pipeline. This is one, an attachment inhibitor that's being developed. Uh, this is another, and interesting for a couple reasons. So a drug affectionately known as 744, given with ropivirine, um, is two-drug oral maintenance therapy. So people were put on a standard regimen and then put on this for maintenance therapy. The interesting points, the um, 744 is an integrase inhibitor, an analog of Elutegravir, has a long oral half-life, and there is a formulation available for injection that has a 40-day half-life. Um, bottom line is that people did uh, well on this oral study, and <coughs> using two drugs for maintenance. And the company is going to go forward now uh, looking at uh, the injected uh, uh, treatment with the injected two drugs, both long-acting 744 and How frequent will it be? I don't know how often. It's got a 40-day half-life, so they're probably looking at like monthly. Yeah. So you know, this study, we've heard about some of these kind of drugs, but this study is now going to happen with those two agents. All right. Tim. All right. So um, I think I think this is the I, I thought this was the coolest uh, result out of uh, retrovirus. <coughs> we heard in the newspaper about the purported cure, which is um, not a cure. And we heard about the monthly antiretroviral regimens also as preventive therapy that um, macaques given monthly integrase inhibitors should protection against SIV transmission. Um, but I thought this was the one that probably is going to generate the most conversations in clinic now, knowing that the hepatitis C stuff is revolutionary, but probably actually going to hit the clinic, uh, not this year. So this is the partner study. And these are interim results, and interim results that I think our patients are going to ask us about, and they're difficult to describe. Essentially, they took different. They took um, a, a large number of uh, HIV serodiscorded couples of different sorts, heterosexual uh, women or men being the HIV negative person, or men who have sex with men, with one of the partners being uh, seronegative, and they um, uh, enrolled only people who were on successful antiretroviral therapy, and then followed the HIV negative partner for seroconversion. And the incidence of seroconversion, which they presented more dramatically than I could, as you know, heterosexual women, zero. Heterosexual men, zero. Men who have sex with men with various sorts of sexual activities, zero, zero, zero. And so over a total of 900 um, patient years of follow-up in this interim study, 
no matter how you sliced it, there was no HIV transmission to the HIV negative partner regardless of the HIV risk factor. So uh, Peter Staley, who's been an activist in the HIV world recently, uh, wrote an article saying that undetectable equals uninfectious. And the problem is that message, because we don't know yet. And that's what these confidence intervals <clears throat> that the authors were really careful to talk about in detail can get missed in our messaging. So these are interim results, and they don't really know exactly how wide the confidence intervals are around the estimate. So is it, as in the case of receptive anal, inter anal intercourse with ejaculation, 0%? Or could it be 4%? The best estimate currently is 0%. But with more time and more patient years of follow-up, it's possible that that estimate could shift to the right. And if I was the HIV negative partner, I'd like to know, is my risk 0% this year having sex with my partner, or is it 2% this year? I'd like to know the answer to that question. And we don't know the answer to that question yet. It's someplace in there. For um, the, the heterosexual means of transmission and for insert of anal sex, the estimates are at least in between 0 and 1%, so it's a little narrower. But there's still uncertainty. <clears throat> So I think we've all been telling our, our uh, patients for a long time that, and our, and our colleagues, our friends, that, that antiretroviral therapy is highly effective at reducing the likelihood of transmission. And this you know, nails that. It clearly helps. But how effective is it? And uh, could we, for instance, um, not use condoms would be the million-dollar question. These are uh, couples who uh, did not consistently use condoms, although though you know the investigators gave education about condoms, they, the subjects decided not to use condoms. So the protection against infection effect is largely ascribed to antiretroviral therapy. And so I think uh, we're going to hear from patients say, well, so do I really need to use condoms if I'm taking my, my meds and it's undetectable? And I, I think the right answer is, I hope so, but I don't know. So I don't know if others had different takes on this, uh, this finding. So I, th I thought this was really fascinating, and I'm sure we're going to get asked about it. So um, I guess if I was the HIV-negative partner um, uh, in particular, I'd have a lot of questions about this. Hopefully, I think it was going to be a couple more years before they had the full, tight uh, study results. So. Um, the other, the other thing I thought might be interesting to talk about was this uh, sort of proliferation of um, studies that had to do with pyroptosis. And I didn't think that um, Croy actually shed much new light on this. There were a lot of derivative studies, I thought. But um, it, it, it is clear that there's a new day in HIV uh, pathogenesis understanding that I thought might be uh, useful to talk about really briefly. So um, in December, Warner Green's lab, you remember Warner Green came here a year or two ago, um, were audacious enough to simultaneously publish in both nature and in science um, two papers basically getting at the same story from slightly different angles. And their major findings are summarized here. And I won't even go through it because the hour is late. But the basic idea is that up until December of this year, the dogma in HIV pathogenesis is, has been that the immune system gets fired up by the presence of this virus, that because of the inflammation that, that causes, you get apoptosis of immune cells, and that hurts the immune system and causes a lot of trouble, such as Mary Margaret has talked about. One problem with that has been that if you look in the immune cells of people with HIV for um, intracellular markers of apoptosis like caspase 3 and other things, you don't see those levels very high. You, you see them, but I've taken with this myself in the lab, they're not that impressive. And so these guys figured out why that is. It turns out that apoptosis is not how AIDS is occurring. It turns out that um, there's been a problem in the way we've understood how HIV occurs. We thought that HIV was infecting only a small minority of cells and causing apoptosis in most cells. It turns out that both of those are only partially true. In fact, HIV productively affects, infects a small minority of cells. And so if you look for evidence of 
replicating infection inside of cells, you only see that in a small percentage, you know, less than 10% of cells using less than five. But if you look for uh, incomplete infection, abortive uh, infection of cells in which some piece of the virus is present inside of the cell, it's just not replicating itself, almost all T cells are infected in that way. They've, there has been virus inside of them, it just hasn't turned the cells into a factory. And, like I said, there's not much detectable apoptosis among those cells. But if you look for a different pathway of cell death, pyroptosis, which uses different intracellular mechanisms, caspase 1 is a prominent one, you can see that, that is happening like gangbusters in those cells in particular, which are abortively infected. And so the basic idea is that HIV swarms the immune system. It's only able to replicate productively in a minority of cells, but it really sort of gloms on and sort of dirties a lot of the immune cells. It's, it's painting the kind of the interior surface of the cells, and that triggers pyroptosis, which is an alternate pathway of cell death, and that triggers death of huge numbers of cells. And uh, they figured out that this is mediated largely, this death is mediated by this uh, interferon gamma-sensitive intracellular factor, IFI-16, and that that cell death um, pathway can be inhibited by an agent which has already been uh, identified and because of different reasons was already tested in humans for safety and so their lab has already started uh, phase two trials having shown that phase one studies exhibited safety in humans. And so very quickly they're converting this new understanding of AIDS pathogenesis into pharmacological therapies, trying to get at exactly what Mary Margaret talked about, the devastating effects of inflammation in our people, now that we know why they have it. So I'll, I'll stop there. So I, I think that's gonna change what antiretroviral therapy is someday. All right, thanks for staying a little late. Questions people have? Anybody?